Greetings. This is Volts, and I'm your host, David Roberts. There are lots and lots of policies being discussed for inclusion in the Democrats' upcoming budget reconciliation bill, from a child care tax credit to universal pre-K to a wide range of climate and clean energy measures. According to the office of Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, the climate provisions in the bill would collectively reduce total U.S. greenhouse gas emissions 45% below 2005 levels by 2030, getting us close to America's Paris Agreement pledge. Schumer's numbers have not yet been backed up by outside analysts, so they should be taken with a grain of salt for now. But what's clear and unlikely to change is that the bulk of the emission reductions will come from the electricity sector, specifically from the Clean Energy Tax Credits and the Clean Electricity Payment Program. As regular Volts readers know, the Clean Electricity Payment Program is a version of the more familiar Clean Energy Standard that has been modified to fit within the rules of budget reconciliation. It would set up a federal program that would offer utilities financial incentives to increase their proportion of clean energy and levy fines on those that failed to do so. Its goal would be to reduce emissions from the U.S. electricity sector 80% by 2030. As Schumer's graph shows, the Clean Electricity Payment Program, in combination with the extension and expansion of the clean energy tax credits, would be responsible for almost 42% of the bill's total reductions. To hear more about the program and how it will work, I'm excited to talk to Minnesota Senator Tina Smith, the policy's sponsor and its greatest champion in the Senate. Smith is one of the handful of senators with in-depth knowledge of the dynamics in the U.S. electricity sector, and she's deeply involved in budget negotiations. So I'm excited to ask her about how the program will work, what kind of jobs and projects it might produce, and how it will affect coal states, and of course, because I am me, what she thinks about the filibuster. Senator Tina Smith, thank you so much for coming on Bolts. Well, thank you, David. It is terrific to be with you. So we're going to talk today about clean electricity policy and the politics of getting it passed, which are two of my very favorite subjects in the world. So, so let's just uh, dive right in. So Senator Smith, I, I'm pretty confident that Volt's listeners are familiar with state-level policies, renewable portfolio standards or clean energy standards at the state level, which mandate that utilities in the state increase their proportion of clean energy. It's a regulatory mandate passed by the state government. Uh, these are familiar. There's there's dozens of them across the country. The Clean Energy Payment Program that you have proposed is not quite that. So why don't you just start by telling us what it is and sort of how it is similar and different to these more familiar state policies? Sure. Well, the basic goal is the same, right? We have the electricity sector, the power generating sector. We want to move the power generating sector so that it is adding clean energy. And one way of doing that is to have a regulatory framework that says you will add clean energy, and if you uh, don't, you'll pay a price, you'll pay a penalty. But another way of doing that to achieve that goal of adding clean power is to do what we're doing with the Clean Electricity Payment Program. So this is a plan that says 
we will provide financial incentives to utilities to add clean power. There'll be a fee if you fail to add clean power. And our goal is to get on a national average, 80% um, of our power generation from clean energy sources by 2030. So the goal is the same, adding clean power, uh, the mechanism is a little bit different. And in many ways, I think this mechanism has some real advantages because under a regulatory framework, um, you know, the, the adding that clean power is, you know, cost money in the short term, though it saves money in the long term. And often those costs are passed on to ratepayers. With the clean electricity plan that, uh, that we're proposing, uh, this federal incentive would defray the costs that utility ratepayers would normally pay. So I think that that's a real advantage of this approach. Right. And it's worth uh, pointing out, this is something I've heard from a couple of the architects, costs on ratepayers tend to be regressive, whereas federal money comes from more progressive income taxes. So you get a, a progressivity advantage too by, by drawing the money from, from the federal pot. Absolutely. That's exactly right. And what you don't want to have happen in this clean electricity, in this clean energy transition that we are, um, that we, that we need to, we need to be on this path. What you don't want to have happen is that the cost of that transition is disproportionately borne by people who can least afford it. And this is especially important to me because the costs of the fossil fuel economy has been disproportionately borne and um, bad health outcomes and in all sorts of other external costs by Poor people, black and brown people, people who are sited right next to freeways or right next to that coal-burning power plant. So the details of this thing obviously matter. There's this flurry of negotiation going on right now, the bills being put together right now, as far as I know. So I'm curious, um, to what extent are the details of, the, of this program fixed and in place versus you know, being negotiated right now? Like, are the size of the payments, do we know the size of the payments? Are we sure that the target is going to stay the same through negotiations? Yeah, yeah. What's what's in place and what's, and what's still up in the air? Well, of course, everything is in the midst of being negotiated all the time, <laughs> so, <laughs> as you well know. And uh, this will be, the negotiations will be finalized when the uh, budget bill, the, uh, the reconciliation bill is completed. But for me, there are a couple of key aspects of this. One, I think that the goal of achieving 80% clean power in the power sector nationally um, on average is, um, I believe that that goal is set in stone. That was, that was described in the Democrats' budget resolution that we passed at the end of uh, the last session that is described as the goal of the president. So to me, that's sort of the, the base point, the starting point. And then there are a couple of other things that I think are uh, really crucial to this. One is that this plan, this clean electricity plan is technology neutral, which means we don't say this kind of clean energy is better than that kind of clean energy, or it must be renewables versus, um, you know, carbon capture, for example, right. we said, so that technology neutralness, if that's a word, mm -hmm. I think is clear. I think it's also really clear the core idea that each utility starts from where they are and they improve from there. So this is a big deal because, you know, some utilities and are already well along the path of adding clean power. Some regions are well along the way and others are just starting. So you don't want to unfairly penalize that utility that maybe is only at 10% clean power 
Right. Can you expand that a little bit? Because this was going to be one of my questions. You know, uh, utilities are at very different places right? financially in terms of power, in terms of everything else. How is it sort of customized on a per utility basis? If I'm a coal heavy utility, what does it look like to me? Well, if you are a coal heavy utility, this is actually very much in your favor because mm. you need to figure out how to add clean while you also have a lot of assets in coal power. So rather than having your utility rate payers end up having higher rates in the short term just because you're adding new clean power capital infrastructure, this would help you to add clean. But you may be a utility, for example, that's only at you know 10 or 15 or 20% clean. So you're still going to be under our plan. We would still ask you to add at a percentage level, yet to be negotiated, add clean power um, every year um, at a pace that uh, is moving you strongly in the right direction. And speedily in the right direction. Mm -hmm. But there's no expectation that that utility that starts at, say, a 10% uh, clean power percentage must catch up with that utility maybe in the Pacific Northwest that relies heavily right. on hydropower and may easily get to 85 or 90% clean within a you know, nine or 10-year period. And as I said, you know, at the end of the 10-year period, you're going to have some utilities that are over 80% and some that are uh, below 80%. And, you know, the utilities that I speak to, the power generators that I speak to that are farther along will probably argue that it's harder for them to add that incremental, you know, right. last 20% right. of clean. Whereas the utility that's starting with um, ample untapped renewable resources, you could, you could argue that they could add, they could add quicker. Right. So there's a national average target but it's not that each utility has to hit that same target. That is exactly right. Each it, it under that's the flexibility. Therefore, makes it um, much more appealing to utilities that are not as far along the curve of moving in this direction. Right. Well, this brings up another question, which is, you know, you're trying to guess or figure out from our present vantage point what level of payments. And what pace of change would yield that 80% by 2030? And it seems like it's hard to know right now exactly what those numbers are. So I'm curious, mm -hmm. you know, if the program is put in place and say payments are at a certain level and the pace of change is set at a certain level, and it turns out in 2024 or whatever, mm -hmm. we find out we're not on track to hit that national target, are there provisions in place to sort of adjust those numbers as we go? Well, I think that is a really great and interesting question. And I'm now going to get really wonky into oh, the details of, you know, of just a little bit about the Senate process, because mm. what we're using here is a, a process that's called budget reconciliation, which is a budget-driven process. And what that means in, in practical terms is that the implementation and the rules around how this plan gets implemented will be much of it will be left to the Department of Energy as they are writing the rules because mm. this is a budget process. It's not a right, regular right. process. But let me see if I can answer your question a little bit at least. One thing I would point out is that historically, the cost of clean power, the cost curve has gone down more quickly than we anticipated. Right. And so... It seems to me that 
particularly for um, solar, which we know is the cost is going down really you know, dramatically, we're, we, we're just as likely to see um, power added more quickly than we originally anticipated than you know, taking longer than we anticipated. But the overall question I think about how you would write the, you know, how the Department of Energy would write the rules to accomplish this is, is something that would probably end up being addressed in rulemaking. And I think it gets to the question of, like, what do you anticipate? What do you think is really going to happen? And the way that we've designed this is based on a ton of modeling from the Department mm. of Energy and from also outside groups who have a ton of expertise in looking at modeling this. And so that gives us some good framework for making some assumptions um, about how this is going to pan out in the real world. Right, right. I guess that'll be hashed out in the, in the, yes, by the DOE. Uh, so these fines, um, well, well, sort of a two-sided question. One is where do the fines, if, if a utility is fined, I mean, you, you've said before that you don't actually expect utilities to be fined very often since the, since the incentives are, you know, they'd be sort of dumb not to take incentives that are right on the table in front of them. But, you know, are there protections written in about what, what, where the fines come from and also how the incentive payments are used? How, how closely is that specified in the bill? Right. Well, I think this gets at a real strength of the policy because, uh, first of all, the answer is yes. We want to write into this um, clearly what are allowable uses for the incentive payments. And Mm -hmm. it could be uh, building out clean resources. It could be deploying carbon capture technology. It could be adding energy efficiency resources to a system. Because if you think about it, if you are reducing electricity demand at the same time that you're adding clean, the percentage of clean of your overall system goes up because you're using less energy. So that would be um, an allowable use. You could, uh, you know, I speak to utilities, um, you know, others, power generators that have coal power plants or natural gas plants that they want to phase out, but they they have sort of a stranded asset, you could potentially use these resources to help to retire quicker those resources. And then similarly, I think we need to have rules around what the penalties, you know, who bears the cost of the penalties in order to protect ratepayers as much as possible. But, you know, as I said, this isn't like the old kind of cap and trade mentality where a utility is looking at this and saying, oh, gosh, my return on investment for paying the fee is higher than or my cost of paying the fee is lower than making the investment because right. it just isn't set up that way. I think that's a strength. Right. And it's a little bit more transparent, too, than, than the cap and trade. It's, it's the money is a little bit more in the headline right. and less sort of something you have to deduce. Right. So if I'm a person in a coal heavy state with a lot of coal related jobs in it, say, for instance, a friend of yours named Joe, <laughs> how do you pitch this program to that person because of course you know states like that fossil fuel heavy states have traditionally been resistant to to things like this because they feel like they're starting on the back foot so in terms yeah. of both kind of the the power mix and also the job mix how do you pitch this program to a, to a coal state yeah well it's really interesting i think about answering that question from the perspective of a place in minnesota that is in many ways similar to parts of west virginia which is minnesota's iron range so mm. this is a part of my state where the bread and butter of our of the economy 
um, and historically the kind of the culture and the source of pride for, for this part of my state has been mining iron and then taconite and producing the iron that has driven the economy of the United States. Mm-hmm. And there is a real sense in that part of Minnesota, just as I think there is in West Virginia, though Joe Manchin knows way more about West Virginia than anybody, that this, this economy is sort of, you know, it's like I'm kind of getting passed by. There are new opportunities out there, but how do, like, is it ever going to come to me and to my community and to my world? And so what I would say is that is one of the real strengths of, of this idea. First of all, clean power, including renewable power, uh, renewable energy is rural energy. <laughs> that's where that's where it is most right. likely developed. In fact, West Virginia has abundant renewable energy assets that have that you know that are waiting to be developed. If you care about wanting to be a part of this clean energy transition, which is by the way going to happen. Um, right. The question is, do you want to lead? Do you want to be in the forefront of that? Or do you want to be behind? And the opportunities of West Virginia and other states that are part of the um, the traditional fossil fuel economy to seize this moment to move forward with the kinds of proposals that Joe Manchin has put forward, like the um, Energy Manufacturing Jobs Act and uh, deploying also carbon capture and storage technology and taking advantage of the skills and the expertise of the working folks in West Virginia to drive those innovations. To me, that's all about being um, in the forefront. And in fact, I think you probably, I have a strong feeling that you've seen this. The University of, uh, the West Virginia University Law School just put out a really excellent sort of summary of what moving to this clean energy future could mean for West Virginia in terms of increase in employment, uh, growth in state GDP, opportunity for new investment that creates new jobs. Uh, it, it demonstrates where the opportunity is in, in places like West Virginia and other places. Yeah. As a matter of fact, coincidentally, I just uh, uh, posted a piece yesterday about West Virginia and about that study. And uh, one of the interesting things about that study is it shows pretty substantial benefits for West Virginia, but it was done, the analysis was done before the clean energy payment program was right. was on the was on the table. So so the clean energy payment program, I feel like would, you know, more than double all, all those benefits, like the amount of money that could flow into the state from federal coffers just through the clean energy payment program is pretty enormous. It it is. And it I think it's such a perfect case study of how the way that this is structured, along with the other uh, production tax credits and other clean and renewable energy tax credits, how this is actually a giant boost to employment um, and jobs and not a uh, kind of gloom and doom, we're going to all have to sacrifice because the the climate is warming mindset that has, I think, too often been the way that these um, issues have been approached. Right. And of course, the question for West Virginia is compared to what, right? Uh, right. What is the what is the alternative? Uh, coal is on its way out, according yeah. to the market. So, yeah, you know, sort of now or never. That's exactly right. I mean, use of coal, uh, you know, coal demand has gone down really substantially. And uh, as I said, this transition will occur. It is occurring. And uh, you know, another thing that I point out because a lot of times people will point to. Um, you know, why should we make sacrifices in the United States when we see right. China, you know, increasingly being a source of carbon pollution? What I'd like to point out is that 
China added substantially more wind and solar resources um, than the United States uh, over the last, what, you know, 10 years or so. They are making significant investments in wind and solar, not to mention electric vehicles and other new energy technologies. So, uh, you know, let's lead on this. Yeah. And how much of a sacrifice is it really to get more GDP and more jobs and right. <laughs> and, right. and less and less air pollution and better health outcomes? And, you know, yeah. pretty nice sacrifice as sacrifices go. And, uh, you know, but I think we also can really acknowledge that um, I had a, a very dear friend who always loved to say that everybody loves change as long as it happens to somebody else. <laughs> right. <laughs> and there's, you could understand why Minnesotans who live on the Iron Range or coal miners that live in Wyoming or West Virginia are really questioning whether at the end of the day, these benefits are actually going to come to them and come to their communities. And so it is incumbent upon us to make sure that we're putting in place the policies that make sure that that happened. And I've spoken with Secretary Grandholm about this a lot. She gets this not only from being head of the Department of Energy, but being a former governor. You have to have a real place-based strategy for making sure that these benefits don't just happen anywhere, but they happen specifically where they need to. And it's the same issue as we talk about the uh, environmental justice needs that we have, right, as well. A couple of broader questions, maybe about the politics of this. One of the vexations about U.S. policy these days is that it seems to swing back and forth wildly, depending on who's in charge. You know, we saw um, Obama pass a bunch of stuff and then Trump take over and just spend four years frantically undoing it all and reversing it. And now it's being redone. So. Is there anything about this program, the Clean Energy Payment Program, and specifically that you think will make it resilient, even if Republicans take back over Congress and or the presidency? I think what you just said makes the strong argument for why it is so important to make these kinds of policy and budgetary uh, decisions legislatively rather than through executive action. Mm-hmm. And you're absolutely right. I mean, when Obama was uh, so tired of being stymied by a recalcitrant Congress, uh, you know, took steps through his executive power with the Clean Power Plan, for example, that, you know, and, and other steps that he took around renewable fuel standards and so forth, it's relatively easy to wind back. Um, but I think there's another lesson here, which is when you legislatively uh, pass budget bills that are not only smart policy, but are broadly approved of by the public, it becomes very difficult to unwind them. Uh, I mean, I look at the case in point of the Affordable Care Act, which the Republican Party that opposed that spent, you know, how many years over and over and over again, tried to unwind it with no policy to replace it with, because they really didn't know what their other idea was, that became more and more popular. And ultimately, they failed in unwinding it because people liked it. And I think that the same can be said of this um, clean electricity plan, because polling data shows that this is the direction that people want. And businesses know this, too, right? I mean, this is why businesses like Walmart and, you know, Kroger's and others are saying, no, our customers want more clean power. This is what they want. And so there's a lot of public pressure to move in this direction. Right. Notably, both large employers in the state of West Virginia, we should uh, uh, make make note. Yes, yes. And, you know, it's interesting. I was just looking at this 
the percentage of people, the percentage of people in West Virginia that are employed in coal is mm. 2%. Yeah. And so again, similar to Minnesota's Iron Range, it's a small percentage, but it looms large in the history and the economic foundation of the, of the state. Um, but it's a relatively, it's a, and it's a small percentage. Right. You know, I, I think I was thinking in some ways that this is sort of the energy analogy to Medicaid expansion in that it is the federal government saying, you need to do this, let us pay for it. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and, and you'll note like some states have resisted Medicaid expansion, but none of them who have accepted it have gone back or have reversed right. it, right? Like once right. you're, once yes. you're getting it, you don't want to stop getting it. That's right. Oh, could I just add one thing there, which I oh, think sure, is really sure. to kind of further that analogy. You know, we could have conceivably designed a plan that would have that would have been state based rather than power generator based. And I think that your point makes the good point that it's one of the reasons why it's good that this is utility power generator based, because um, they're going to be making investment decisions and economic decisions uh, that will support advancing this. Right, right, right. It'll be hard to unwind those. Yeah. On a broader level, um, this is kind of a two-part question. One is, um, you know, uh, some people in the Senate have raised worries about deficit spending and about spending too much money and running up the deficit and um, exacerbating inflation. And so one, do you worry about that at all? Like, what's your take on the sort of uh, worry about deficit spending? And Two is if the overall spending number gets uh, haggled down, how safe do you feel like the energy money is in mm-hmm. in those negotiations? Like, is it is it going to be on the chopping block if if there are cuts to be made, or or how how are you feeling about that right now? Well, not if I can help it. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I I think that broadly speaking. When we are looking at the overall size of the Build Back Better budget, and let me just say, it's really important to say that pretty slowly, or you will almost certainly not get it right. But the Build Back Better budget, I don't hear in Minnesota people saying, oh, Tina, three, you know, this amount of money is too much, but, you know, 3.5 trillion is too much, but 3.1 trillion would be okay. I mean, I don't think that that's how people are thinking about it. I think they're thinking about how is this going to affect me and my family? And that's sort of the cliche of talking about legislative policy, but I actually think that it's real. And so certainly as we go through this negotiation and we have to come up with a plan that is agreeable to all 50 Democratic senators, there's going to be some haggling and some back and forth. To me, the most important thing is that we don't give really strong policy uh, and budget proposals like this a haircut so that they don't they don't work anymore. Uh, And, you know, we got to we got to make sure that we don't do that. But, But the other question that you ask is an interesting one, too, about sort of budget and deficit spending and so forth. And I would just point out that when we write this bill at whatever size it is, it's going to be paid for. So that's a good thing. And in fact, when you look at how Americans feel about the Democrats' budget bill, one of the things that they like the most is that it is paid for by asking you know, the wealthiest Americans and big corporations to pay their fair share. That seems fair to them. And it seems right. It generates resources in order to do these things that are going to build up our economy and lift up our communities in really powerful ways. 
Yeah, I have been somewhat confused that the sort of vague deficit concern seems to kind of persist and come up again and again, even in the context of a bill that is explicitly paid for. Like, I know, it, I know. It just seems like something people say almost by instinct now in, in D.C. I think that's right. There is sometimes in Washington, David, maybe you've noticed this, there is sometimes a disconnect between rhetoric and reality. Have you noticed that? <laughs> what? <laughs> Yes, uh, yes. I'm, I'm, I'm skeptical that there is any human being that has genuine concern about the deficit as like yeah. a primary thing in their heart. It always sounds like an excuse to get at something else. Right, right. And you know, if I could just add that the um, the, the bipartisan infrastructure bill that is moving through Congress that passed the Senate with 69 mm. votes is um, about investing in infrastructure, including some really important strategies for advancing this clean energy transition with electric vehicles and charging stations and um, sort of all of those things. That was bipartisan and um, probably not completely paid for. So, mm -hmm. you know, and, and I would say, shoot, you're investing in roads and bridges and uh, broadband infrastructure that's going to be around for 60 or 70 years. Like that's what states do all the time is borrow to pay for uh, long-term assets. So to me, that's not a big deal. Right. And putting in place long-term assets drives economic growth, yes. which is, is the best thing for wiping out a deficit. Okay. Right. We won't, right. Get, exactly. we won't get stuck ranting about deficits. I could do I this know. all day. <laughs> Let's have another <laughs> podcast for this. <laughs> um, uh, also on the broader politics of this, you know, energy and climate people are just watching this unfold from the outside with white knuckles, <laughs> just extremely nervously, there's this two-track strategy. You know, you got the bipartisan infrastructure bill, and then you got the reconciliation bill, which together are supposed to be the full, the full agenda, the full package. But there's been a lot of, you know, um, fights and strains lately about whether to keep those two bills linked. You know, there's a fight in the House about it just last week. Mm -hmm. Are you a fan of that strategy? And do you think it's going to work? I mean, do you think that that linking those two bills is the right way to go? And do you think that you're going to be able to keep them linked? I think it is absolutely right to link these two bills. They are, to me, they're like, they're rafted together. They are connected mm -hmm. together. My support for the infrastructure bill, um, which I think is a good bill, is contingent on understanding that we have all agreed that we're going to move forward the reconciliation bill together. The, the two-track process sort of divided up a broad agenda into two chunks, but we still need to pass that broad agenda for the good of the American people and for the good of people in my state. And one of the things that I've learned about uh, legislating in the relatively short time that I've been in the Senate is that you have to have a clear idea where you're heading. And in this case, the Democrats are heading towards passing these two big bills. And then you have to be flexible and incremental about how that happens at the, you know, as you move through the process. And then there's just a pileup at the end. And then you get it done. And I'm not looking forward to the pileup, but I expect that it'll happen. And that is the reality of working in a um, you know, in a democratic process where there's 100 people in the Senate and what, you know, 365 people in the House that all have very clear ideas about how they want to get things done. I've never seen, just in my political lifetime, a situation quite like this where where there are 50 Ds and every single one of them has to agree. I know. It's kind of terrifying. I know. It gives every single one of them the ability to to blow the whole thing up. Like every, you know, people yeah. are focusing on mansion and cinema, but really every Senator yeah. could blow it up. 
but at, but at the same time, if they blow it up, they all go down together. It's right. a real. It's a. It's some, there's going to be a game theory study about this someday. That's right. But you know, the point is, at the end of the day, this broad agenda is going to be. I mean, it is broadly popular, and it mm-hmm. is what Joe Biden ran on. It's not like it got pulled out of thin air. It's what he talked right. about, and what so many of us talked about during our campaigns in 2020. And so you're right. I mean, the price of taking this down because you didn't get absolutely everything you wanted and because it's a little bit more money than you wanted to spend, that seems to me to be a really heavy price. Right. There's no half failure here. It's yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's, it's all success or all failure. One for all and all for one. Along the lines of of unity and the and the question of how to legislate in today's politically dysfunctional atmosphere. What is your take on the filibuster? This is not directly related to the to the reconciliation bill, but but in a sense, you know, everybody Democrats are forced now to basically run the vast majority of their agenda through the uh-huh. reconciliation process because of the filibuster, and that shapes what policies they're capable of doing and excludes some policies that people would like to see, like, like, like voting reform and and potentially immigration Mm -hmm. reform and stuff like that. So what's your take on the filibuster personally and the attitude of the democratic caucus about the filibuster? Do you see that changing at all or shifting? Well, I am personally, uh, I believe that the filibuster rule ought to be thrown out. Uh, And I didn't come to that easily. I, believed for a long time that it was important that hard-won rights were, you know, couldn't be taken away by a simple majority in the Senate. But I really have changed my, and I, I cared about that one because I, I've spent a lot of my life working on women's reproductive rights. And I imagine mm. a world where um, a majority of the Senate could strip away those incredibly precious rights. But my perspective on this has really changed is I really just came to understand how fundamentally undemocratic it is to require a supermajority to get anything done. And I also mm-hmm. came to see that the filibuster, which is the right basically to debate or to talk as long as you want to, um, that that isn't really happening in the Senate these days. It's not as if Mr. Smith is going to Washington and, right. and making impassioned speeches on the floor of the Senate, right? right? Mr. Smith is sending his staff member down to say, I'm putting a hold on that piece of legislation. Right. It's a, mem- it's a memo. Right. Now. right. Exactly. And, and, you know, the truth be told, the Senate is already structurally leans towards giving strong power to less than a majority of the voices because, you know, the mm-hmm. you know, 50 Republicans in the United States Senate represent only about 43 percent of the American public. Right. And, and so what do we do because of the our unwillingness to the unwillingness of some to um, a, change these rules that, you know, also have a you know ignominious history? Um, yeah. We develop workarounds like the reconciliation package that allows us <laughs> to pass significant and important legislation with a simple majority at the end of the day. It's, it doesn't make any sense. It, it's not what you would write out if you were sitting down to write out a, right. a coherent uh, legislative process. Well, that's maybe there's no answering this question, but how common do you think that opinion is in your caucus? And do you think there's any chance of this changing I mean, it, it really only matters in the next two years, right? I mean, it's either yeah. got to be done in the next two years or not at all. Do you think there's any chance of it, of opinion thawing or shifting within that time frame, or is this just something people should write off? What I would look for is um, other, uh, I mean, I think it's hard for me to see a world where uh, people just change their minds on the filibuster. 
Um, however, I would look for other ways that Senate rules could be reformed so that they make more mm -hmm. sense, so that it is um, th th that the Senate can function better, and maybe possibly um, changing the rules around um, ending debate for particular pieces of policy. Though, I mean, that's maybe my, more my wishful thinking than than <laughs> anything else. In the moment, I think we have to seize this moment that we have to take action on climate. Um, a moment that I don't think will be replicated for you know many years, and we don't have time to waste. There is an urgency of right. seizing this moment. And that's what a lot of us are working really hard to do. Well, on that note, um, thank you for your work. Thank you for pushing so hard for this. And thank you for taking the time today. It's great to talk with you. Thanks a lot. All right. Bye now. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Volts podcast. It is ad-free, powered entirely by listeners like you. If you value conversations like this, please consider becoming a paid Volts subscriber at volts.wtf. Yes, that's volts.wtf so that I can continue doing this work. Thank you so much. I'll see you next time.